Yeah, it's been a long time since I last recorded an episode. And I think all of my listeners know that I'm studying really hard so that I can get licensed by the Israeli Ministry of Tourism to be a tour guide in all of historic Palestine. And the exam date is now set for the 28th of December. So I know what I'm working towards. I will try to record some episodes in the coming time, uh, probably mostly historical episodes, because that really also helps me doing some research and studying several important topics. But in the meantime, past summer, I have also been working on a trilogy for Pax Palestine podcast. Pax for Peace is an organization in the Netherlands that I have made podcast episodes for them before. And this time they asked me to do three episodes about their civil society for dignity project that they do with local partners in Palestine. I decided to also upload them here so that you can listen to them. And I hope that you will enjoy this trilogy. are listening to the Pax Palestine podcast, a podcast that features interviews with some of the local Palestinian partners of Pax, a peace organization based in the Netherlands. Pax works together with committed citizens and partners to protect civilians against acts of war, to end armed violence and to build a just peace. In Palestine, Pax supports local partners in building resilient communities promoting human security and equality in the political, cultural and social domain and in fighting the injustices resulting from the protracted occupation. My name is Crystal and I'm your host. I am a Dutch citizen living in Palestine with my Palestinian husband and two children. Besides running a cafe and a bar in Bethlehem, I produce a weekly podcast called Stories from Palestine. For Pax, I produced this special trilogy of interviews with the local partners that Pax supports. part of a trilogy about the Civil Society for Dignity project in Palestine. This project is implemented by three Palestinian organizations, MEND, PCR and PCPD, and supported by PACS. The episodes were recorded in Beit Sahur close to Bethlehem with organizers and participants of the project. In these episodes, we explore the political landscape and the civil society in Palestine and we discuss how the project Civil Society for Dignity can contribute to playing their role as advocates and watchdogs in Palestine. This is part one, an introduction to the local reality. I'm sitting here with George Rishmawi. George, we've known each other for a long time, maybe 15 years ago. You are very, very involved in the civil society in Palestine, and you also have a good knowledge of the Palestinian political landscape. So we wanted to start with you to give us a little bit of an introduction to understand a bit more 
about Palestine for those listeners who do not really know much about it. But before we talk about that, can you just introduce yourself and tell us what you have been doing over the past decades for no. Palestine? <laughs> yeah. oh, that's a, a long question, of course. This is a very long question. We do have a long answer to speak about at least 30 years of involvement in, in the Rapprochement Center and more before. But working for Palestine is what we live for now. And this is why we try to think of any idea that can develop, you know, uh, the Palestinian society, help develop Palestinian society, that can help Palestinians become more able to speak about Palestine to international audience. This is important because there is a big gap between uh, the Palestinian narrative and uh, reality in Palestine and with the international narrative about Palestine. I'm talking about the official line. We understand that people in the world see the situation in Palestine in a different way than the governments presented. And this due to uh, biased reporting about Palestine by media, by corporate media in particular, not telling the truth, all the truth, or telling parts of the truth, which distorts the image in, in general. So we have been trying to, I can say, fight this problem with so many ways through working with the Palestinian civil society and with the international community as well on grassroots level. That included actually even Israelis. So to speak about Palestine, the first people you need to tell them about Palestine in reality are the Israelis because they are the ones who live right next door and have completely different image about the reality and different impression. And then, of course, we can move to others. So Rapprochement Center is based on this idea of advocacy for Palestine, advocacy for peaceful solution for the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, or actually it's peaceful ending to the Israeli occupation of Palestine, if you want to be very precise, because it's not just a conflict, it's an occupation that has to come to an end very soon in order to have justice and then peace prevail in this area. So being involved with the Palestinian civil society is what actually drove us as an organization to run a project as such, to work with civil society, and if you notice the name, Civil Society for Dignity. The Palestinian civil society has been very active. If we talk about the time before the uh, establishment of the Palestinian Authority, the Palestinian civil society was acting like a government in so many different ways and different organizations. The Palestinian agriculture, for example, uh, committees were working on uh, agricultural relief and activities that help, you know, which is an important industry in Palestine. The Palestinian medical relief services, for example, acted like a ministry of health. Some smaller organizations, different kind of groups and organizations took the job of a Palestinian government, although they were young, small organizations. So to build on the civil society is very important. The municipalities are also, or the local governments, because we don't have, uh, at least at that time, we did not have a national government before the establishment of the Palestinian Authority, although we still ha have issues about that. And now, uh, yet the local governments were very important and reflected the Palestinian identity and the elections that took place in 1976 were very important to decide who actually 
is running the show on the ground in Palestine. So Palestinian liberation movement elected people to become mayors and council members to fight the Israeli attempts to appoint members of councils and, and mayors because they wanted people to collaborate with them, not to work against them. So later on, we heard about assassination of mayors, assassination or arrest of members of council, etc. Therefore, the councils became very important. The local councils or the local authorities became very important in the political sphere and became very important in deciding the general politics because they, in a way, represented the PLO. Now, if we talk about now, Palestinian municipalities and village councils are the only elected bodies in Palestine. The Palestinian Legislative Council doesn't exist. Is dissolved by a presidential decree. The president himself is now outdated. If we talk about the Palestinian constitution, should have been elected again or somebody elected in 2010. And if now we're 23, so uh, the, the only legitimate, so to speak, elected bodies are the Palestinian uh, local authorities. So can you explain how that works here for people who don't know anything? Palestine became Israel and then they occupied the West Bank of the Jordan River and the Gaza Strip. And then there is East Jerusalem. And now there is a Palestinian Authority, but with not full control. Mm -hmm. So how does that work? And when you say that there hasn't been any elections since 2010, 10? Presidential elections, 2005. Oh, yeah. So that means that there's a whole generation of youth that mm. grew up that never participated in any elections. Uh, okay. In 2005, we had presidential elections. 2006, we had legislative elections. And since then, we didn't have elections as such, except for local authorities, municipalities, village councils, etc. Now, what you said now in, in a very brief sentence that, you know, Palestine, you know, overnight became Israel, 1948, and then the rest of the West Bank or the rest of Palestine was occupied 1967. Israel had implemented the military orders in the West Bank and imposed military government on the Palestinians and tried to take control of all aspects of life civil administration, and uh, also military administration, security, etc. In 1993, well, after the Declaration of Principles and later on Oslo in 1995 implementation, a Palestinian Authority was established. Yes, we know it has very limited sovereignty, but not enough to establish a state. We know that they have civil administration in, uh, uh, in control, but this is a burden that has been Israel was relieved from by moving it into the Palestinian Authority and international community between quote-unquote as well in terms of funding, etc. So Israel was responsible to run this important and big segment of uh, a government, but Palestinian Authority doesn't have sovereignty on the ground until this moment. We are in 2023. Palestinian Authority doesn't have full uh, sovereignty and full authority because Israel can come in the Palestinian Authority areas anytime. And we have seen that just last week in Jenin. I mean, there is no need to talk about other experiences or other examples before. Now, that situation makes it very odd to talk about the government and a state 
and a two-state solution and all of these issues when we don't have territorial contiguity, we don't have sovereignty over all the territory. So these are basic elements of any state in the political science, so to speak. So we go back to local governments. If these local governments are very important and they are the ones elected by the people, so the people are the general assembly of these local governments. They are the governing body if we are talking about, you know, uh, science, this kind of, I mean, political science. So if the public is not able to hold these local governments accountable and talk about what they do, then there is something wrong because they are the ones who elected them. So there is a gap between the public, civil society, and the local governments. The way elections are run is one of the sources of the problem. The way the politics in Palestine, you know, the involvement of political parties, families at the same time, dictate a lot about who is going to be elected. So it's not merely political. It's not merely a family. It's a mixture that has to come to a certain balance in order for things to run and they between quote-unquote right way to elect a local government. So even the political parties, when they want to name their candidates, they don't do primaries and, you know, somebody runs and wins the, the primaries and become the candidate. It's actually a balance between political involvement and clan or family involvement. Because if somebody is not supported by his or her family, will have very little chances to win even if this person is the best person or not the best person. So this is a very complicated issue. So this balance between political affiliation and family affiliation is one issue. This makes it difficult. Some people in the families think if we elected this person, then he or she has to serve us as the family members. I'm talking about big families here in, uh, you know, in Palestine. I'm talking about families who can be 500, 700, 1,000 or 2,000 people. So they can definitely affect uh, results of the elections. But still, trying to mingle through all of that, the Palestinian civil society still need to be more involved in accountability of the local councils because they affect their life in every day. In 2019, we ran a survey, I remember 19 or 18, we ran a survey in Beit Sahur about the satisfaction of the citizens on the performance or the services provided by the Beit Sahur municipality in particular. And based on that, we had, of course, there were some good uh, reactions, negative reactions, middle reactions, and different things. But after that, we had a town hall meeting where we had the mayor and the council members in a big room meeting and, you know, asked them questions, presented the results of the survey, and then start people asked questions to the mayor and the mayor answered. This is a kind of accountability, at least a beginning that we can talk about. I believe this was the first town hall meeting in Palestine. I don't recall any attempt by any other, you know, city or town or village to have the mayor sit you know, on a, on a chair and ask him questions and he has to answer immediately, directly. I mean, doesn't have to, time to think about the questions. So 
if that becomes a norm, the mayor or the, the, the members of the council will be more, I had to say, uh, careful about their actions. Of course, the mayor is kind of an employee. He or she is a full-time staff in the municipality and has to be there all the time. On the other hand, the members are volunteers and they have their own work and they just come for meetings and all. So this gives the mayor more time and authority in a way, even if things have to go through by voting in the in the council, but the mayor knows more and is involved on everyday basis. So the mayor is very, very important because he's a like CEO and everybody else are volunteers. Now, this structure makes the member of the council less involved in the, in the council or in the municipality in general, although they, some of them become more like, you know, involved in committees like health committee, engineering committee or the building construction committee, etc., try to, to give their input based on their experience. Yet the mayor and the director of the municipality are the ones who are there all the time. This needs more accountability, if not by the council, by the public or by the civil society. Now, how can we do that? People need to receive some training. People need to understand how municipalities work. They need to have some skills on evaluation and criticizing without being offensive. I mean, the idea is not to get somebody guilty or not. I mean, the idea is to serve the community. To serve the community, you need to be professional as well. So training is needed, and we have done trainings for the young people, for organizations, to get them to be more ready step by step, you know, to become more involved. This might lead in the future, I believe, if young people are more aware of how municipalities work, what is their main task, what are the duties, what are their rights as members, and as civilians or as citizens, what are our duties and rights? Because when you talk about accountability, social accountability, you just you don't talk only about your rights, but your duties as well as a citizen. Maybe in the future, then, if they run for elections, then they have in their, you know, background experience, and that will hopefully enhance their performance as council members or mayors. This is one of the core issues of uh, this kind of a project, this, regardless of the details of the project. If you speak about the civil society in Palestine, then what do we have to imagine? What kind of civil society, what kind of groups or NGOs are there? How is it organized? Yeah. Well, we have, of course, political organizations that I see now are not very, very active. We have more like NGOs, non-governmental organizations. Our problem with non-governmental organizations is that We're very much dependent on funding, and it's usually foreign funding, foreign aid. Foreign aid, you are bound to um, the themes suggested by the donor countries or the donors, European Union, USAID, etc. And those are the major, you know, donor organizations or bodies. And if you go to the smaller projects level, you know, um, like uh, you have this, you have to do the same work for less funding and less funding you don't do a lot of activities in that so uh, this is a becoming a serious problem 
We have another, you know, issue, which is the conditional funding, which is political money in a way or another. Um, we are asked to sign on these legal documents. Uh, the, the donors, you know, provide that those are terrorist organizations. You shouldn't work with them. Otherwise, we don't give you money. The USAID do vetting for the people that you work with. This makes your work very limited. And many people now are even trying to boycott those kind of uh, funding. And this is causing more stress and more pressure on local NGOs that some might shut down because of lack of funding. If you want to survive, you have to create some kind of income-generating projects. And income-generating projects, you need seeds money. And it's very difficult to find this kind of money. The, the, the funding is oriented. They want to give you money. But this money is, of course, restricted. You can use it only within the budget line. And, of course, there is a small margin of change if you want to shift between one line to another line and with approval, of course, by the donor. But this cannot develop the organization. It helps us implement activities, definitely. It helps us try to develop certain aspects in the society or certain sectors in the society and help uh, things in the future, but it doesn't help the organization to sustain Sustainability is our nightmare. Now, you have to always keep looking for projects and apply for projects and then, you know, do all of that. But we established an idea. We established Siraj Center, which is an income generating project. But it's, you know, tourism and tourism is not very stable in Palestine. It's up and down. Anything happens on the ground affects tourists and affect the tourism sector in Palestine. In the past month, four groups canceled. Oh. Our, our groups, you know, are not traditional tourists. We do hiking, community tourism, so people go in Palestinian cities. We want them to understand, you know, life in Palestine, meet Palestinians, and see different aspects of life in Palestine. So they have to go through Nablus and Jenin and, and uh, Ramallah, Bethlehem, Hebron, etc., and if their governments, you know, send the travel advisory, then they would be hesitant to come. So we had some groups canceled. Hopefully they will delay, not cancel, yeah. but <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you never know. But this is a fragile yeah. sector, but at least something that we can depend on to help the organization continue. This is one of the reasons we are still here for since 1988. Yeah. And if we are talking about, in the civil society, women and youth, mm -hmm. where are they organized? If you want to reach out to these groups in order to offer them such a project, for mm -hmm. example, how are these people organized or is everybody just on their own? We are trying to target women centers, women organizations. They have problems with organizational structures. They don't have skills to run organizations. But we appreciate the fact that they are trying to run an organization. If they have some, and we did actually with other projects, provide some capacity building training for women centers so they can apply for funding, maybe run their organization, do the management, accounting, etc. in general, and to market some small organizations who have products from women so they can, you know, market their products to, to local and international community using social media, etc. So this is a smaller small level uh, capacity building projects. These are important. So the women are organized in, in organizations and centers. 
but individuals should also have a space. So we have had meetings in, in the locations where this project is running. It's running in about eight governorates, targeting 24 locations. Nablus, in Jenin, in Tulkarim, in Bethlehem, in Hebron, and Tubas, and uh, Jericho, and some other. So eight governorates, three in each governorate. So we're trying to split uh, where not so many services, like we did not, we don't have something in, in Ramallah. I think Nablus also is not included, but we have 10 governorates, so these are the only two. But there is a need for more. Young people now, a big problem, a very big problem, because they, when they graduate from high school, they go to university immediately. In their university time, mostly busy with studying, then they want to work. They're looking for a job. Volunteering is diminishing, so to speak. Volunteering is good in so many ways. One, it helps you as an individual build your capacities, sharpen them, so to speak, enhance your skills, and gives you more opportunities for work. I'm very surprised that that people are running away. Well, I don't want to say very surprised, but I understand why. Because the moment they finish school, they want to work because of economic situation. And they need to support their families if they get married or whatever. So you cannot expect them to volunteer all the time. But the time, the best time for them to volunteer is during university years. At least these four years, they can build experience. So when they go to work, they have experience because most employers looking for like three years, five years experience. So now how come for a new graduate to have four years experience or two years even without being involved in an NGO or a civil society organization or whatever. But to do something, volunteering gives you experience, but gives you also satisfaction that you are giving something to your country, to your town, even. So to speak of a small level involvement, at least to your town, where your family and friends live in there. By contributing and helping in your town, you're helping your country in general. So sometimes, unfortunately, people don't see it this way. And again, I say I, I somehow understand that because they need to look for a job immediately. And even when they are studying, they need to find a job to pay for their school. So uh, it's, it's a little bit complicated. It's very rare that you can find an organization that can provide pocket money for volunteers. For example, we cannot provide that, and I know that, unless you have a project. Again, we go back to the project and funding and, and, and all of that. But it's important element to build on, to have young people involved and women involved because they key players in the society. Young people become leaders in the future. The women are the ones actually also who are, how to say, raising this generation. And this is our society. The mother is very important. She is the one you know, uh, educating her children and taking care of them and making them either good boys or bad boys uh, in, in, in very <laughs> specific <laughs> terms. But we cannot ignore the role of women, even we are in a masculine you know, society, but we cannot ignore the role of women 
the role of women in Palestine probably is more obvious than other Arab countries because of the unique situation of the occupation and the involvement of women in uh, political organizations, political parties, in the resistance in, in, in general that maybe puts a Palestinian woman in a better status than uh, maybe other, other Arab countries. Before I start to, to talk about the project with some of the people that are very involved with that, what is, according to you, the biggest gap that exists between the citizens and the local authorities here? There are reasons for the gap that exists between the Palestinian civil society and the uh, local authorities. One is lack of knowledge of what are actually the main duties of the municipality, what they should do, what, what is the task that they should perform. Because in many cases, they fix problems in the community and they work as, you know, in the old tribal way. And this is not actually the right role or the actual role of the, the, the municipality. It should work on developing the town, providing services for the citizens and all of that. And again, I want to stress the duties of the civil society, the individuals, the citizens. This is very important. If they are not aware of their duties, then they don't see the municipality or village council in the right way. So knowledge is one thing. The second thing, as I said, the way members are elected and the mayor is elected. So it's more, you know, family, political, etc. It's not always about the quality of the candidate. Even if the candidate doesn't have uh, enough qualities, enough skills, etc. But he or she is the one selected by the party or the family. And uh, sometimes with the family thing, it which part of the family now has to be chosen to represent the family. So that's another complication. Sometimes you don't have the right person in the right, the right place. So this is uh, the gap is that people only see what is implemented. They, they go, okay, maybe we have lots of garbage in the street. The municipality did not do their job. Okay, how, what can you do to support the municipality. You have a duty on that. You have a role as a citizen. We have a problem with that. Sometimes the municipality members themselves or the council members themselves have misconception about what they can do. What are their duties? Okay, I'm elected and that's it. That's not enough. And you are more in, in power, you have more responsibilities towards your people, your local community, etc. I think if the civil society becomes more involved in the social accountability of the municipalities or the local authorities, they will think before making decisions. And in that way, we get them more involved in the decision-making process, maybe not directly, but at least before they take a decision, they will think about the community. So we started to see now announcements by municipalities saying we are going to close this road for construction. We never saw these things before because people complained. All right. This is a very simple thing, but at least you can see that the council thinks about the reaction of the citizens before they 
do this. Okay, they're doing something good, which is reconstructing a road. This is something we need, but it will obstruct mobility. And we don't have so many roads that can become alternative roads. So, but they have to at least tell people we're doing that. In the past few years, we had a big project to run, you know, to fix the um, infrastructure of water network. So again, the municipality had three or four meetings with the different uh, neighborhoods to tell them this is going to happen. It will. We have to dig the streets. You know, there will be trouble. But at least you are prepared. You have prepared the the community for it. This means that you're thinking about their reaction. Now, these kind of things are important. And if this becomes a trend, then the municipality members will start to think, okay, if we want to take this decision, how this will impact the community, what their reaction will be. So this means that more of of this gap is becoming bridged with time. The ideal situation will be to have a certain kind of a joint interaction sessions that will help the municipality become more open to the public and share ideas. Now also we see uh, like that they have they hold activities or uh, meetings. The municipality hold meetings to plan the strategic plan of the municipality. So they invite people from the community and from different organizations to meet and talk, discuss together what are the needs. So when the municipality set their strategic plan for the next four years, at least the local community somehow is involved. This, of course, um, if you run a survey, and in our survey that we had in 2019, People said we don't feel part of the decisions of the municipality because the municipality cannot invite all the public, but they send invitations to organizations. So if you are not involved in one of the civil society organizations, then you're not aware of that. I don't know how this will be solved, but the municipality cannot consult with the people on every decision. But you can maybe have themes. If you have the themes approved and in general terms, then day-to-day decisions are taken in a probably more easier way. Thank you very much, George. I think that gave us a really good overview of how things are run here in Palestine and what the role of the civil society is and what it can be more. And now I will talk to some other members of the team to discuss more about how that project is implemented. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Crystal, and thanks for all the listeners. Shukran. Tune in to the next episode to hear more about the project itself and the experiences of some of the participants. Thank you for listening to Pax Palestine podcast. If you want to know more about the work of Pax, you can visit their website paxforpeace.nl or click the link in the show notes of this podcast. My name is Crystal and you can find my weekly podcast Stories from Palestine on your favorite podcast player or on the website storiesfrompalestine.info.